Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Rich, for those of you who don't know me, and I have the privilege of taking us through this next part of our time together. Um, and if you were around last week, you'll know that Mike kicked off a brand new series for us. We are uh, exploring a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, just a few short verses over the next couple of months, where Jesus uh, gives a series of short teachings uh, which have come to be known as the Beatitudes. And we're calling this series, as you'll see on the screen, Living Restoration. It follows on really nicely from everything we looked at at Easter because each beatitude, each short saying, unpacks an aspect of what life following Jesus looks like, enabling us to be cultivators of restoration within ourselves now and as we look forward in anticipation to how God is going to one day restore all things. This is what we read, the whole lot of them all together in Matthew chapter 5. It will come up on the screen behind me as well. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, and last week, Mike really unhelp, uh, really helpfully, actually, not unhelpfully. <laughs> I was <laughs> a bit of a Freudian slip there, wasn't it? He, he very helpfully, I found it helpful, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I, had to, I listened to it twice last week, in fact, in both news. It was that helpful. Anyway, he was really helpful, I thought, in unpacking it for us, because it's really dense, isn't it? There's loads of stuff in there, um, and that's why we're taking a couple of months to look at it together. And the main thing that he kicked off by looking at was how the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew echoes the story of Israel together in order that it emphasizes that Jesus is the one who fulfills the whole story of the Bible. Everything that the whole story has been leading up to is all caught up in Jesus. That everything about how God desires for his good and loving and perfect rule and reign to come and fill the whole earth is made known, is perfected in and through Jesus. And that's the scene that we get to as Jesus starts to teach here that Right before, in Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 23, just the passage before this one in your Bible, it says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And that's what he's doing here in his teaching. The Beatitudes, these short sayings of Jesus are good news. They are that good news of the kingdom. Theologian Tom Wright translates that first word, blessed, as wonderful news. Wonderful news for the poor in spirit. Wonderful news for those who mourn. 
Because primarily, each one is a proclamation of what God has done. As we've already heard, as has come through in our worship, each one is not an, an attitude for us to try and work up in ourselves, despite how similar the word sounds in English. They are good news announcements for those that the world considers down and outs. Not try to become like this, but rather those who are already like this are blessed, are happy, are fortunate, are receivers of wonderful news. They cut against the grain of what we might expect. As we read this passage, we can ask the question, what, what meaning do the Beatitudes have for a society that honors the self-assertive, the confident, and the rich? What meaning do they have for those for whom life at the moment is really hard, is really desperate, and is really painful? Well, the message to both of those groups and to everyone in the middle is this. God is faithful, and God is with you. And today we're going to be focusing on the second beatitude in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I think this is a really apt series for us at the moment. It wasn't planned like this, but we know that at the moment we're living in a time as a community when there is a lot of suffering amongst us. And it's really important that as we journey together, we would keep receiving from Jesus. We keep fixing our eyes on Jesus as we've heard. We keep understanding more and more the depth of that wonderful news that is proclaimed to us, even us, in this place and in this moment. And just like last week where uh, we heard a little bit about the word blessed and how none of our modern translations kind of get a sense of the word. In the same way, I know that for many of us here today, even hearing that word mourn will bring with it a lot of emotion. It will bring with it a strong response or reaction. The immediate connotation for us, for most of us, is probably a sense of personal grief at the loss of a loved one. It's a word that is very likely to stir up some kind of reaction in us, either reminding us of a grief that we are carrying even now or that we have done in the past. That's a word that is familiar to us as a community. But the sense in this beatitude is that whilst that's part of what Jesus is talking about here, it's also much wider than that. Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases the first part of that verse. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. And that speaks of what Jesus is getting at here. Those who mourn are those who have come to see that everything they have placed their hope and confidence and security and identity in, apart from God, is ultimately broken and fallible. It's those who look at the state of the world around them, look inside their own hearts and feel the weight of the brokenness that exists there. To be a mourner in that sense is to be someone who has faced up to the suffering in the world and the weakness in themselves and reckoned with the reality of them and known the truth of them. We don't have to look very far, do we? to see the brokenness in the world around us. We have to look 
less far even still, I know I do, to see the brokenness in ourselves. Mourning in this sense is something that goes beyond sadness in the heart. It is something which encompasses the whole body, the whole range of emotions that each of us will express differently. For some of us, it might be despair, anger, love, bitterness, hopelessness, fear. For some of us, we might weep. Others, we might worry. Some of us might rage or row. Others might simply sit in silence or surrender. It encapsulates not just those downhearted from death, but also those incensed by injustice, those counting the cost of their past, those despairing of the destruction to our planet, those struggling with the sense of their own sin. Throws the promise, therefore, wide open. And with it, the announcement of the good news, because actually, whether or not we realize it, it encompasses each of us at the deepest level. We are all those who mourn, because at some level, we all know the brokenness in ourselves and in our world. And I know that's true for me. In fact, the more I've grown in my faith, the more I've been forced to come face to face with the brokenness in my life and the brokenness all around me. And I think that's probably a typical Christian experience, that the more we center our lives on Jesus, the more we see more of him, the more we see more of his wholeness and goodness and righteousness and beauty and life, the more we can't help but feel our hearts breaking for every expression of brokenness and sin and pain and death. Because that's God's heart too. God's heart breaks for those things. And the more we're shaped into the likeness of Jesus, the more they'll break ours too. Jesus' whole mission is to shine a light in the darkness. And sometimes that can be uncomfortable for us. You know, when I'm allowing myself to get wrapped up in my own pride, my sense of self-worth, self-achievement, it's an uncomfortable process to learn humility. When I'm allowing myself to give in to worry about circumstances or about the future, it's uncomfortable to learn to trust God no matter what. When there's sin in my life that is unrecognized and unresolved or recognized and still unresolved, it's uncomfortable to learn to see my weakness and bring it to God. When I'm allowing myself to become centered on other things, to find my hope and confidence and security and identity in things outside of God, it is an uncomfortable process to let them go, to realign myself with the one who offers me all of those things in himself. See, I think Jesus wants to use those moments to reset our priorities. So if we are finding those things in anything other than him, we might come to see that true comfort, true meaning, true identity can only be found in him. And if we're looking for it 
anywhere else, we're only ever going to be disappointed. That everything else in this world that seems to promise or seems to offer lasting comfort, whether finance or pleasure or power or prestige or recognition from others, any of those things are only a shadow of the comfort that Jesus has come to share with all of those who mourn, all of those who feel the weight of that brokenness. Only then can we stand and say with the Apostle Paul that every reason I have that I could boast in myself, no, I count it all as rubbish. I count it all as nothing compared to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Because see, no sooner is the reality identified, no sooner does Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn, then the promise comes, for they will be comforted. As Peterson puts it, only then can you embrace the one most dear to you. There's an old Middle Eastern proverb that says, all sunshine makes a desert. In other words, somewhere that only receives heat and light, that never tastes the rain, is not somewhere where things grow. There is a particular growth that can only come when the rain comes. And in the same way, there is a particular work that God does in us as we mourn, as we wrestle with this brokenness and this reality, which we can never receive if we don't allow ourselves to see the brokenness in our hearts and the brokenness of the world. And it's not that God ever causes those things. That's really important to know. He is a good father pouring out good blessings to us. But it is that he always wants to use those moments to speak to us in a unique way, in a powerful way. Mourning can show us, as nothing else can, the depths of the comfort and compassion of God. When things are going well, it's easy to live on the surface of things. When sorrow comes, we're driven to the deep things of life. And if we receive all that God has for us in those moments, there is a depth of strength and beauty that can enter our souls. So how do we do that? How do we receive? I want to focus on three main ways that Jesus brings that comfort to us. Firstly, through lament, through wrestling, with it. Secondly, through his scars. And finally, through our community. And the Bible is full of the language of lament, of those walking this journey. It's much more common in the Bible than it is in our contemporary culture, even in our Christian culture. We find it much harder to express our pain to God and to one another than the biblical authors did. For doing that, for them, just doing that is part of the regular rhythm of life that everyone engages with. That's something the church has known throughout its history, perhaps much better than the expression that we have at the moment. Through seasons like Lent and Advent, there's a time of sitting and waiting in the darkness to receive all that God has for us in those moments. And yet because of that, when we come to the Bible, we find that if we're struggling for the words... We can enter into the prayers that have been prayed before. We can enter into everything scripture has for us to give voice 
to the words that we don't have, to express the inexpressible. There are so many examples that we could look at from the Bible on the theme of lament, of pouring out your anger and your fear and your frustration towards God. It's it's seen in uh, Job, in David, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah. Even Jesus himself laments over Jerusalem. There's a whole book just called Lamentations. It's an expression of that rhythm. One I want to look at in particular is true of the life of David in Psalm 13. He's a guy who's wrestling with having lost everything that is most dear to him. This is what he says. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. That's his reality. This is a man who is poor in spirit, who is at the end of his rope, who is feeling the weight of brokenness and crying out in the pain and the silence, crying out for answers. How long, O Lord? How long must I carry this burden? How long must this pain continue? How long must I battle this temptation? How long must I feel alone? How long will I go unrecognized? How long will the poor be oppressed? It's questions that each of us will wrestle with in different ways at different points in our life. Yet what we see in David, the pattern is he doesn't do those things apart from God. His cries are all addressed to God. He's not just venting. He wants answers. He wants the light at the end of the tunnel. He wants to see the life and light and hope come to him. When God seems distant, when David has been running in his own strength for so long, what hope does he have of crossing the chasm that seems to separate him and God? What reason does he have to believe that God will hear his cries? This is how he ends his psalm, just the very next verse. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. David's comfort in this place of mourning isn't tied to anything in his present situation. It is wholly dependent on the eternal, everlasting character of God that has been revealed throughout history and supremely in his word. And the word translated there as unfailing love is the Hebrew word hesed. It's a word we looked at in quite a lot of detail a couple of years ago as we went through the story of Ruth together as a church. It's a word that means a kind of loyal, loving kindness. There's a depth to it that doesn't quite come through with our word love. We kind of have that as one word that we use in all kinds of different ways. I love my family, but I also love football and pizza and chocolate and all kinds of other things. And we know they're not the same thing. We know they're not the same kind of love, but we don't have a way in our language of almost expressing that. 
There are times when I've got, not got warm, fuzzy feelings for my family, but I'm still committed to them in a way that runs much deeper than my present experience. If you strip away the context, it's easy to reduce love to something which is basically sentimental, that's kind of vague and fuzzy and impersonal. And it can be really easy to think of God's love that way too. To think, okay, God's a loving God, great, in that he just kind of generally wishes everyone well. He wants them to be happy. That's who God is. He's kind of a cosmic well-wisher. But in the Bible, God's love is always shown in a very different way to that. It's always shown in his covenantal commitment to his people. The hesed of God, a loyal, loving kindness is shown in strength in action. It's shown in fierce commitment. It's shown in tender emotional care. And I think this whole structure is really important. It's really important that he laments first, that he wrestles with the depth of the darkness that he's facing and the brokenness he's feeling. It's really important that he brings it all to God, that he leans not on his present experience, but on the revelation of God's character. And you know, I don't think it always has to be for us as fast as it might seem in this psalm. One verse sorrow, the next praise. I think it's okay if you're here this morning and you're feeling very much in the first half of this psalm. I want you to know it's okay. It's okay to sit in that place. It's okay to sit in the sorrow and to feel the weight of it and to cry out to God for the future you're longing to see and the way through that you can't yet see. Anyone can complain, and everyone does. But to lament is to be utterly honest before a God who has given faith as a gift that enables us to trust him. It affirms that suffering is real and significant. It is not a meaningless blip in a cold <coughs> and uncompromising universe. No, suffering is spiritually and mentally, it's physically and emotionally and relationally significant. Suffering matters, but it's not hopeless. As we lament, we allow God to meet us in that place. We find the truth of who he is and the promise of his presence with us. It's the promise we've heard come through this morning again and again. I love it when that happens. You stand up to speak on something that God's already said in far better ways than I can through the worship and the word to us. Lament leads us to Jesus. Because see, Jesus starts his whole ministry with a declaration from the book of Isaiah that God's spirit has been poured out on him to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring freedom to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to comfort all those who mourn. He is the one who promises to never break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick, who in every interaction with the poor and the hurting and the broken pours out love and grace to them, meets people where they are, stands with them, in their brokenness. 
God's spirit has been poured out in Christ in order that all who know their need might know that their needs are met in him. We've heard already today about the now and the not yet aspect of the kingdom. That's something that runs so clearly through each of the Beatitudes. That good news of the kingdom is breaking in. God's rule and reign has been announced and is here. It's coming through in in life and in love, in hope and in healing. But at the same time, there is still tremendous brokenness, still sadness and pain and oppression in our hearts and in the world around us. The promise of comfort, of embracing the one most dear to us, is to bring wonderful news to the mourners both now and in the future to come because of what Jesus has done. On the cross, we see God's loyal, loving kindness fully expressed. His covenant commitment to his people to deal with the brokenness at our very core, the brokenness in the world around us in order that what is true of him becomes true of us. The comfort that Jesus knows from the perfect unity he enjoys with Father and the Spirit is offered to us in himself. He is the gift freely given. He is the comfort made known. Not that we close our eyes and suddenly everything is okay again, but that we can know he endured even that in order to be with us in the midst of it. And at the same time, the promise of the resurrection is that God's project of new creation has already begun. That by his spirit, through his people, he wants to bring it to each and every person, just as he will one day bring it to all of creation in a renewed and restored heavens where every tear is wiped away from every eye. But doing away with brokenness doesn't mean undoing its scars. It means redeeming them. I was really struck this week, and I don't know if you saw it, there was a video on the BBC News website about the True Cancer Bodies campaign. It's a campaign which seeks to kind of shine a light on the physical reality of those living with cancer, a reality that I know many of us in this room are feeling really keenly at the moment. And one of the things that really stuck out to me from that video was that as people were honest, as they showed their scars and the pain they were living with, they'd had loads of responses back saying, I don't want to see that. I don't want to know that that's happening. I don't want to look at that. And that really stuck with me because it reminded me that the world doesn't want to know about our scars. It doesn't want to know that these things are happening. It wants to hide them away, keep them contained to hospital wards where they can be locked away in a box in order that we can all get on with our lives. There's a desire in our culture to try and cover up our scars, to hide our brokenness and our need from one another. Because when perception is king, when what other people think is on the throne, showing any kind of weakness is a disenthronement, it's a dispowering. Yet when we come to Jesus, what we find is that the opposite is true. He meets us in our mourning and he shows us 
his scars just as he did to Thomas and the disciples in a wonderful encounter in John chapter 20. That as we grapple with them, we might know that God has not changed. His desire to be with us, to walk with us, has not changed. And he's proved it by the scars that he still carries on his resurrected body. You know, if God could raise Jesus from the dead, he could in an instant have healed all of the marks of the crucifixion. And yet, what the world sees as imperfections, imperfections like holes in your hands, a hole in your side, God takes them and he gives them prominence in Jesus' resurrected body. He makes them features of his new being because he's not ashamed of his scars. They are the trophies that tell of the magnitude of what he has done on the cross. They are the demonstration of the depth of the cost that he has endured to bring us to himself. They're the evidence that he has borne within himself the death that we were due. They are the exhibition that the power of sin and shame that was keeping us captive has now been broken. They're the proof that he loves us so much he was willing to do whatever it takes to achieve that. And they're the expression that he did it so gladly that he is willing to bear those scars for all eternity to testify to that truth. Jesus' scars are the promise that whoever we are, whatever we've done, we can always come running to him because this is what he has done to draw us close. Jesus' body displays that which he sees as most important to communicate to those who see him, that the power of death is broken, that new life has been born in the midst of the pain. God's project of new creation has begun in the midst of darkness and death and despair. The assurance of faith is that when we bring our scars to Jesus, because we've all got scars, he will tenderly meet us, he will heal us, he will hear us, but he doesn't do it by making them vanish. He does it by working in the midst of them to break any power of shame that they might have over us. It might cause us to know his peace and his wholeness and his comfort. It's not a formula or a system, it is the gift of God himself in Christ, freely given to us. A gift that we might be able to receive, as Thomas does, by turning to him, my Lord and my God. And that's something that we do together. We do it as a community. We fix our eyes on the future. That until that comes to be, we're living in the messy middle. We're holding tight to Jesus together. We're journeying together. We're standing together, praying together, lamenting together, holding out hope together. And often that's hard. Life is messy, but there is a unique beauty in that. And living in this community of Oasis Church, I'm struck by that more and more as we journey together. The more that different ones of us are squeezed by sickness 
and anxiety and weakness, as many of us are at the moment, the more I am amazed by the strength and kindness and compassion that is shared amongst us as a community. This is the work of God in us. It's how that we know he is right here in the midst of us. Because when things get dark, Jesus shines out all the more brightly. And I really want to commend you, Oasis Church, for that. The honesty, the vulnerability, the depth of community being shared here in the midst of some incredible suffering amongst us is beautiful to see. It's beautiful to be a part of. So thank you. Thank you for opening your lives up, for being okay with things not always being neat and tidy, for being okay with brokenness and messiness and tears, for building real relationships that offer genuine comfort. I am so moved to be part of a community that expresses that so well through their lives, that isn't phased by it, that is constantly seeking ways to bring comfort to one another. That's why understanding the Beatitudes is so helpful for us as we journey together. It's really easy to take them out of context, to see them as dangled promises, a little throwaway line that Jesus tosses up to those encountering hardship. Oh, you may have lost everything, you might be struggling with all these things, but cheer up, here's a quick word to make you feel better. Stick it on your fridge, move on with your life. But that's not what they are at all. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's a promise central to Jesus' message. It's an announcement that what the world declares to be good has been turned on its head. It is not the survival of the fittest, but the triumph of the victims. It is lasting hope for all those who feel the weight of brokenness in themselves and in the world. A hope that we are to know, to receive, and even to enjoy together. That's the opportunity that we have together. It's the opportunity that we have right now. That if you are here this morning, that you are feeling an acute need for this comfort, that you're someone who is face-to-face -face with the brokenness in yourself or in the world, this is an opportunity to receive Jesus again today. He's here for you. Comfort is here for you through him, through what he has done. It's an opportunity to meet with Jesus in that place, knowing that because of the cross, he has been there himself. We can receive it all again from him because of all that he has done. This is the promise of God for you today. And so if you're feeling that, we're gonna have an opportunity in just a moment to pray, to stand together. And so I wonder if I could invite us, if you're able, to just stand now together. Maybe some of the things you've heard today that have come through in the worship, that came through as Mike shared, that have come through as we've looked at the word together, have really struck you, have reminded you of something in your own life 
something in the lives of those that you love or in the world around you that you can feel the weight of again. It's okay to feel that weight because as you feel it, God wants to meet you in that place to bring his comfort. And so Jesus, we pray. We thank you that by your spirit, you are here right with us even now. That you are the one who has been poured out in order that we might receive all that you are. Lord, we receive your comfort again. We stand together as one body, one community, one people. And we say, Lord, come and have your way. Come and speak to us. Come and meet with us in our brokenness. We don't come putting on a mask. We don't come covering up our scars. We come in honesty and reality that this is what we're feeling, this is what we're facing, and this is your promise, I will meet you there. I am right there with you. I am faithful, and I am with you. Jesus, I thank you that no matter what we are facing right now, this is a word that we can receive, that just as David did, looking forward anticipation to the comfort that you would bring so too we on this side of the cross stand and receive from you we open up our hearts and our lives to you again and we say Lord would you meet with us would you enable us to stand with one another would you send us out to bring comfort to a world in desperate need of it in Jesus name